Good morning, CCC. It's good to be back with you again. I love coming here. I love having the um, opportunity to, uh, to minister to you guys because I know that Kevin is uh, already, you are a well-plowed field. He's got you ready. Um, I bring to the table a, a different skill set. I'm not as good looking as he is. Uh, I don't have Nate's hair either. And I'm sure not as dynamic as Dave Ramsey, but you know what? It is what it is. So I'm thankful to be here with you. I'm thankful that uh, I've got, this is an opportunity to go to church with all of my family, um, uh, except for our son who's in New York, but uh, Lacey, wave if you would, and I've got grandkids here, Essie and Zion, and uh, I've got a couple of other ones that are too small to make it in here. I think one of them's somewhere nursing, and I don't mean taking care of patients. He's the newest addition to the family. You, you haven't um, met Rabbi Magnus Samuel, have you? I'm sure you'll have that, uh, that pleasure soon enough. Well, I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about the nature of our Bible. See, I think that um, from a long time ago in Christianity, it's been very popular to read a passage and immediately run to spiritualize it to try to make it relevant to you. I remember um, one of the uh, interpretations of the great early church father, St. Augustine of Hippo. He said that when Jesus uh, crossed the Sea of Galilee in the boat with his disciples, you remember the story in the Bible, the storm came, the winds blew, and water was beating into the boat. Jesus was asleep, and they had to wake him up. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus stands up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and everything ends up being okay. St. Augustine says that uh, uh, the, um, the storms, well, that's kind of going through life's journeys and we will be buffeted by difficulties and struggles and, and trials, and, um, that, um, but it's important to, to be with Jesus. And as long as you're with Jesus in the boat, in other words, as long as you are members of the church, then you're safe. This became eventually Roman Catholic doctrine, and if you are an official and in good standing member of the Roman Catholic Church, then you are saved. So you see kind of where that goes, but this didn't stop with St. Augustine. Uh, Today, uh, you read this stuff gets passed around on the internet. Uh, Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he had a napkin on his face. He took the napkin, folded it up, and put it aside, and um, uh, what that meant was Uh, the way that you fold a napkin and the way that you leave it at a certain place that you're going to be back. You know, like when you leave a table to go to the restroom today. The problem is, in Jesus' day, there were no napkins. So that tubes that. You've probably also heard that when Jesus was scourged, he was beaten with a cat of nine tails, right? And then that um, if you take that and you multiply it times the 40 lashes minus one, the 39 Um, lashes uh, that the Bible allows for for corporal punishment multiply those two numbers together and you get the exact number of negative commandments you know things not to do in the Bible and that Jesus was taking one lash for each one of those for uh, our disobedience to commands in scripture and the problem with that is the Bible doesn't say anything about a cat of nine tails, and the Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus being beaten 39 times. That was Paul. They beat Jesus, as you saw in uh, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, for as long as they wanted, and as many times as they wanted, because they weren't Jews, they were Romans. So you see what we do, right? 
You know we do this on a regular basis. What I want to do with you this morning is expose you, uh, maybe in a different way, to a different sets of lenses, different ways of looking at your own Bible. And I would challenge you uh, to, to go here because the Bible is an incredibly real book. Um, the first lens I want you to look at with me is looking at the Bible through the lens of ancient literature. Um, And and as our test case, we're going to take one of the sayings of Jesus um, to Peter on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. Jesus said to Peter, before uh, that you yourself tonight, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And there's an inherent problem with that because we typically um, think of, of cock crow, the rooster crowing, at the very break of day or early uh, just before the sun comes up. And if that's the case, it can't be tonight because it's got to be you've got to get the cock crow that it was at night the next day and then the cock crow the next day. So parts of two or three days rather than this very night. When we look at ancient literature, though, this thing begins to clear up. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us that in Jerusalem, the night was divided up into watches of three hours, and each of those were sounded so that everybody knew, and especially people functioning in the temple as priests and Levites would know exactly when their shift began and ended. In the material that the early rabbis have left behind, from the before and during and just after the time of Jesus, the rabbis had forbidden roosters to be raised anywhere around the area of Jerusalem. So that would then be a historical problem if cock crow referred to the crowing of a, uh, an animal at a certain uh, point of the day. And then in uh, another place in the writings of, of the early rabbis, they say that this very same phrase, cock crow, um, was a person generating a sound through a trumpet that was a sustained, then a quavering, and then another sustained blast. And then finally, there's a text that, uh, that gives us the full meal deal on this. It doesn't get any clearer than this. Um, the early rabbis raised this question. What is this phrase, alektor phonesi, that we get in the Greek of the gospel um, of Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? the kriyata gever that the rabbis talk about in Hebrew. And one rabbinic authority says, well, it's, it's the call, it's the sound of a man. And there's a teaching that's in accordance with this. That is, what does Gabini, the temple crier, the one who's calling out with his voice, what does he call out? Arise, you priests, for your service, you Levites, uh, to your platform, O Israel, to your post, And his voice could be heard from as far away as five to seven miles to the extent that one day King Agrippa, and this helps to root it in the first century A.D. because King Agrippa is mentioned in Acts chapter 12. He was a king for four years and died um, early and you can read the story of his demise at the end of Acts 12. Um, That he was coming in from the country uh, returning to Jerusalem into his palace there, and he heard the, the voice of Gabini the temple crier calling out and loved it so much that he, when he got home, he sent, he sent the guy a gift. 
Um, and we even have archaeology on this as well. Um, this comes to us from, a, uh, from 1968. Israeli archaeologist Benjamin Mazar uh, discovered this big chunk of rock that had fallen down from about 250 feet below, above when the Romans destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. This was found down on street level and there is an inscription. It says, to the place of the trumpeting or the sounding. Um, and so evidently there was a, a box 250 feet up above the street level where either a man with his own voice or with a trumpet or with maybe both depending on what the occasion was or what time uh, it was making a sound that marked the hours or the watches of the night. So it is indeed possible because it's a man-generated sound and it, was, it came at specific intervals that you didn't have to wait two or three days for uh, a rooster to make his uh, sound at daybreak. And so you could hear, quote, cock crow twice in the same night before it ever was uh, the dawn. Um, this place that, uh, where the um, inscription was found, here's the, the city of Jerusalem with the old wall that runs around the city. And then this rectangle is the Temple Mount. And where that was found was at street level right here. Um, actually, we can get a better idea from a, a model that is in uh, Jerusalem that I use regularly when we uh, teach there, uh, take students there to, uh, to study. And here's, the, again, the, out, uh, the outline of the Temple Mount with the holy, uh, the holy place inside, the Holy of Holies here. And the southwest corner is the location of, uh, for um, the pinnacle of the temple and the place where the temple crier would sound the watches of the night. Here it is looking from the opposite side, and there's your southwest corner there, and we're actually looking from the back uh, of the uh, temple mount at this point. And there's a close-up. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Um, so instead of guessing or instead of trying to spiritualize this quote, problem away, you make reference to reality and all of a sudden things just fall right into place. Let's take a look through another set of lenses, um, through the lens of history. Um, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is, I know it's a very busy slide, but I wanted to get it all in one place so if you strained your eyes you could actually see it. But this tells us about something that Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. And I would think that, that for every one of us that have placed our trust in him and are counting on him to, to be who he says he's going to be and for our eternal destiny, that all of the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross would be important to us. And so um, here uh, we have Paul saying, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, that you were one time separate from Christ and excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near, far off, now near, by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who's made both groups into one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall the, or the, the, the middle wall of partition or the dividing wall of hostility depending on what, what translation that you read. But the problem with this text is this is the only place in the whole Bible, Old or New Testament, where this phrase occurs. So the question is, what did he do? What did he 
What did he remove? What did he break down by his blood on the cross? Notice it says, so that he can make Jews and Gentiles into one new man and establish peace and reconcile them to God in his uh, uh, death on the cross. Also, that we're no longer strangers or aliens, but fellow citizens and members of God's household. And that ultimately, with Jesus as being the cornerstone, we're being built into a building, a holy temple, a, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So what is Paul's point of reference? That's all really cool and important stuff, right? I mean, it just sounds really good. Um, but to get on board with the reality of it, instead of r- running directly to, well, let's spiritualize it because we don't understand what he's talking about, is to go to ancient literature. And in ancient literature, we find as, as early as 132 B.C., the book of First Maccabees was written, and it talks about tearing down the wall of the inner court of the sanctuary, which we don't hear about in the Old Testament. Uh, for the tabernacle, the temple of Solomon, or the temple of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Philo of Alexandria, a contemporary of Jesus, lived at exactly the same time, um, talks about um, the prohibition of certain people, non-Jewish people, from going into the inner confines of the temple. And then Josephus, our friend of the first century, a first century Jewish historian who was born and grew up in the land of Israel, really nails this down because he says, proceeding across the court of the Gentiles and toward the second court, which we said was the holy place, one found it surrounded by a stone barrier. And that, though, that phrase in Josephus' original Greek is exactly the same words that Paul the Apostle used in Ephesians chapter 2, the middle wall of partition. Three cubits, that's from the longest finger to the elbow, about 18 inches on average, uh, three and a half feet tall. And in Greek and Latin letters, there was the law of purification that no foreigner was permitted, permitted to enter the holy place, um, for so the second enclosure was called. Now we go back to that model of the city as it was in 66 AD before it was destroyed in 70 by the Romans. And what you see again is this wraparound court here is the court of the Gentiles. And the holy place is, is kind of in the middle, situated in the middle of the temple. And what separated the two was a low stone fence that Paul refers to as the middle wall of partition, and also Josephus calls it by that same name. And at regular intervals, there were entrances, but there was also these words of prohibition forbidding anybody to come in on pain of death. And actually, two of these were discovered in the late 1800s by a French um, archaeologist. When archaeology was in its infancy as a science, he came up with two of these, and they were in Greek. One of them is in a museum in Istanbul. Another one is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And when we go there together, I'll show that to you, and we'll stand right in front of it, this close to it, and translate it. Sound like a date? Okay. Um, And here's your translation. No foreigner is to enter within the, the, the fence or railing around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself will be the blame 
for the responsibility for the death that will ensue. And by the way, that's exactly what you read about at the end of the book of Acts when a Jewish mob thought that Paul had brought Greeks into the holy place and they grabbed him and were trying to put him to death when a Roman uh, officer came down from the fortress, arrested Paul, and actually ended up saving his life as a result of that. Here's another lens that we'd like to look through today. Um, and encourage you to begin to develop on your own through the lens of language, to more carefully listen to the language of the Bible rather than just kind of um, uh, skimming over uh, it in sort of a uh, rote kind of way. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that Jesus has a, um, a confrontation with a group of Pharisees. And it, at least the initial flashpoint is that they're eating with hands that had not been ritually washed. We're not talking about hygienic washing because they didn't know about microorganisms. Um, but rather, this was a tradition that had developed in Judaism that you wash your hands before you eat. I think it's kind of cool that we still do that, and hopefully it helps in, uh, in other ways. But um, Jesus responds back, why are you eating with uh, hands unwashed, he responds, well, why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, he's saying you're focusing so much on your human developed and generated traditions, you've forgotten the word of God. And here's the example he gives, because God said, honor your father and mother. But you say, whoever says to father or mother, anything that belongs to me, anything of mine that you might have been helped by in a physical kind of way, has been donated, given to God, um, dedicated to the temple. And so he doesn't have to honor his father and mother. Thankfully, we've got multiple reports of this same story in the Gospels. In Mark's version of that, Mark preserves the original Hebrew word. It's a technical term that's used. Anything of mine that you might have been helped by is korban. And now we're on the board with the original language of Jesus and the original situation, korban. And uh, we have this in the Gospel of Matthew in another place. It's at the end of the Gospel. Judas comes and brings the money back, the 30 pieces of silver. You remember, right? And he gives them back to the temple priest, the same priest that had paid him off. But they say to themselves, we can't put this in the church treasury as korban because it's blood money. Um, And so we actually hear this word both in Matthew and in Mark. Um, Josephus, our old Jewish friend, first century historian, helps us again with this. When he's talking about um, the uh, commandment in Exodus 20 to honor father and mother, he says, honor to parents ranks second only to honor of God. And so he's, he's connecting them as do the later rabbis because the slightest failure in his duty toward them. Notice the physicality of this. It, it's not merely, as, as I learned when, in, growing up in the 1950s and in the South, that you're supposed to say, yes, sir, and no, sir, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Well, that's all still good, but the question is, is that what Jesus is referring to? No, he's talking about what, you, what benefit you would have gained from my stuff. That stuff has been donated to the temple. And so in the writings of the rabbis, What is a commandment pertaining to the son concerning the father? Giving him food to eat, something to drink, clothing him, covering him, taking him in and bringing him out and bringing him back in, washing his face and his hands and his feet. In other words, 
physical responsibilities in, uh, in a mother or father's older age are incumbent upon children. And there we have Jesus and the early rabbis and Josephus all saying the same thing. So what Jesus says to these, um, those who would uh, question him about his eating uh, with unwashed hands or his, his disciples and his response back to them and referring to that which you would have benefited from me has been made korban or devoted to the temple. And we also have some evidence from archaeology. I've counted about 12 of these pieces of um, uh, some, some kind of dedication that something given to the temple that has inscribed on it these four letters, the K, the R, which is backward from the way we write our little R, but they write this way and we write this way. So just turn that around. The B, and then the last letter that you can't see is the N. If you take that and roll it out, because it looked like a stopper to a bottle, some type of a, uh, some sort of a vessel with liquid, then you end up with this, K-R-B-N, Korban, because Hebrew is a consonantal language. You have to add the vowels. Korban. And it, this is really cool because what shows up in that impression is two turtle doves. And we're told in the Gospel of Luke that that was the offering that Joseph and Mary offered as the poor person's offering um, in redeeming the firstborn when Jesus was dedicated at age 40 days in the Gospel of Luke. Let's take a look at another, uh, through another lens. And that's the lens of geography. It's so neat because it's very visual. It's real easy to learn, and you can immediately apply it. In the, uh, as our test case, we're going to look at a couple of passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew and Mark, we hear Jesus coming to Jerusalem for his last week uh, and then for Passion Week. He's coming down the Jordan Valley, so he passes through Jericho, the city of Jericho. We're told in Matthew and Mark, as they were going out of Jericho, they meet a man who was blind whose name was Bar, son of, like Bar Mitzvah, Bar Timaeus, which is all fine and good until we get to the Gospel of Luke. But then the Gospel of Luke, it says, as he was approaching Jericho. So this is exactly the kind of stuff where people who are non-believers, who are liberals, would say, see, you have a problem with your Bible. He can't be going out of and coming into the same city at the same time. Unless you have Alzheimer's, how can you meet the same person twice, right, for the first time? Um, there's only one blind bar Timaeus. And so you take the spiritualization thing is basically, well, you know, the details don't really matter. It's Jesus is Lord and Jesus loves me and um, he makes me a better person or whatever. But if you can't trust the Bible in the small things, can you then trust, him, trust the Bible in the big things? So we have to go back to the land of the Bible. If the, if the thing being described and the issue, the problem, originates in the land of the Bible, then the answer to that is back in the land of the Bible. Here we have in the foreground uh, a, um, an aerial picture of Old Testament Jericho. This is the Jericho that was completely destroyed by Joshua um, during the conquest and settlement of the land after the death of Moses. What's really interesting is you have yet another Jericho, about a quarter to a half a mile south, built by King Herod the Great, the same that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, killed the babies in Bethlehem, and here's one of his palaces. 
And this is a really interesting picture. He, for some reason, he was really taken with himself, so he couldn't have one palace in Jericho, the modern Jericho. He had four. Here's another one. And you can see from this floor of one of his four palaces, you can see Old Testament Jericho in the background. And so in reality on this, ladies and gentlemen, you can have your cake and eat it too. Jesus was coming out of Old Testament Jericho and about to enter New Testament Jericho. And it's even better than that. Matthew and Mark grew up in the land of Israel. And they grew up as Jews reading the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And they heard all about Joshua. And, and the fo- their focus as, as homeboys would have been on biblical Jericho. They would have despised this idolatrous monstrosity a quarter to a half a mile down the road that King Herod the Great built, who they, everybody hated because uh, he taxed them too much and because he... It wasn't born Jewish. He was Jewish by conversion. And that um, had all kinds of big palaces built on the backs of people who had paid taxes to Herod all of their lives. And that also had these great big wide streets that had statues on every street corner that was forbidden by the law of Moses. No graven image, that kind of thing. To them, the modern Herodian Jericho was an abomination. Luke would be in a different category, though. He was a latecomer to this whole thing. We don't hear about Luke coming into the group with Paul until Acts chapter 16. And and he's not Jewish. Um, And so uh, his audience, as well as he, they would be oriented toward this palatial, gigantic, sprawling, modern city built by this guy that was world known in, in, in that day, Herod the Great. And so everything falls into place, makes perfect sense. And now we've made sense out of a couple of Bible passages that you couldn't otherwise. Through the lens of, um, what was it? Because I'm 60 now and I have four grandkids. Geography, exactly. That easy. It's that easy to get on the board with that. A couple of more lenses. Let's look through the lens of archaeology for just a moment. Um, 150 years ago, it became popular to say, well, there was a guy named King David mentioned in the Bible, but he's sort of a national hero. He's kind of like a King Arthur, sort of like a Robin Hood, and really he's legendary. He didn't really exist. Um, And then these stories that we hear about this guy, King David, that's just to advance a narrative that Israel was once upon a time before its destruction and exile, a great nation that conquered other nations and that was a big player in Middle Eastern politics. Like David put garrisons, fortresses among the Arameans. That's where we get the word Aramaic, people from Aram. Today it's Syria. Uh, In the capital city of Damascus, You know, this is on the news almost every day now because of the Civil War. Uh, Just in passing, it doesn't have to do with this passage. I want to encourage you to to incorporate in your prayers instead of, Lord, bless me and bless mine. Um, Add to that, um, Lord, bless your persecuted church. Provide for them, protect them, guide them in the difficult days that they're experiencing because there are still Jews and Christians in places like Syria and Iran and Iraq. And there are places all over the world, Indonesia and Sudan and and China, where our brothers and sisters that we're going to spend eternity with um, are in need of our prayers because they're a persecuted, beleaguered minority. Uh, Let's join, let's yoke with them and pray for the persecuted church. And, and do that on a regular basis. Um, you hear about people like Ben-Hadad, First Kings, and um, uh, uh, about how um, 
uh, these guys, and this is a very busy slide, as is also this one, so I'm going to go ahead and skip to this one, how the prophet Elisha predicted that there would be an overthrow in Aram and that one king would die and another king would, would, would take his place and uh, that that king would bring all kinds of devastation on Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. It had split after Solomon's death, and that um, eventually there would be a, uh, a king of the southern kingdom and a king of the northern kingdom who would be put to death. Um, and what's interesting is in 1993, and then again, uh, a couple of years digging seasons later, more of this came to light. There was a victory monument that was set up by an Ara- Aramean king named Hazael, who is mentioned in the Bible, who had, um, according to this text, been made king by his God. And, and the other king had been assassinated and he'd taken his place. Um, and that he would inflict all kind of damage on the northern kingdom of Israel and would even be a part of putting to death a, the, one of these kings from the line of Ahab and a king from the tribe of, uh, from the, um, the southern kingdom of Judah. And we actually have this. In fact, we have a reference to David, and it's the earliest one that's ever been found, and it's less than 100 years after David the person had lived. And according to this text, we have right here on this line, and I'll show you a close-up in just a second of it, we've got now um, here the B-T, um, uh, B-Y-T, bait as in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. It means house or place, sometimes temple, sometimes palace, but it can also mean dynasty when it's connected with a person's name. So B-Y-T and then the uh, triangle is the ancient D. It's, it even looks like the Greek D, right? You see it on people's T-shirts and sweatshirts for fraternities and sororities, delta, 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 and it's three triangles, right? So D, and then there's a um, I, and another D, David, or DVD, uh, which is kind of a, another one of the things we do, DVD, hmm, Bible codes. Oh, that David's very name could be a prophecy for a modern invention, new technology. And they knew this back, you know, like 3,000 years ago. That's probably not the best way to handle Scripture. Um, let me show you a, um, a, a translation of this House of David inscription or Tel Dan inscription. Uh, the king of Israel had penetrated into my father's land. That's what the Bible said, right? Set up garrisons in Damascus. Um, and then Hadad, who is the storm god, made me king. That's exactly what um, uh, Elisha had prophesied. And then he killed Joram, the son of Ahab, that was predicted, and Ahaziah, the son of Joram, the king of the house of David, and that was described in 2 Kings chapter 8. So all of these things are either describing the fulfillments of prophecy or descriptions of of historical events that actually took place, and we actually have this Beit David, the the house of or the dynasty of David referred to in a 9th century B.C. document written by a pagan king. How cool is that? Okay, last lens, because I'm almost done. The lens of geology. Really? Do we have to get that nerdy? Hey, why not? We only go around once in life. So 
in the book of Exodus, during the, uh, the wilderness wanderings, the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai and they're about to receive the law, chapter 19, chapter 20. In the book of Exodus, chapter 17, the people are murmuring against Moses, look, we're, we have no water We're going to thirst to death out here in this desert. God tells Moses, strike the rock with the rod that's in your hand. And water flowed. The people's thirst was quenched and everything was great. What's what's really fascinating though is in another time, in another place, in another event in Numbers 20, God says, I want you to speak to the rock and water will come out of it. I will provide water for my people. But Moses disobeyed and in anger struck the rock again. Now, was he just going with what worked the time before? Or was he so angry, he was so worked up that he's kind of taking his frustrations out on the poor rock? Or was it something even a little bit more sinister? You know, Moses had spent 40 years of his life, one-third of his life, as a shepherd in the wilderness, in this kind of desert situation, and you learn all the tricks of the trade. And so um, Moses, in a way, was saying, I'm going to be your provider, Israel. I'll show you who's boss. I'll show you who can produce water. You think I brought you out here to let you die of thirst? No, I'm going to give you water. Because shepherds knew something that maybe we don't know in the, in the United States today. See, the first incident took place in the southern, the far south of the Sinai Peninsula. And there the geological formation is hard red granite. You can beat on a hard red granite rock until the cows come home and you're not going to get a drop of water out of it because granite is not water permeable. And so um, striking the rock was going to be a miracle if water came out of it, regardless. But when you get to the second event, it wasn't God being arbitrary. It wasn't God jerking Moses around, toying with him. Um, It wasn't God moving the target either. It was God saying, in both of these situations, I'm the source of miracle, and I I want the people to see me as their source. You are their leader, but you're not their ultimate source. And so here's a, here's a picture of one of the northern Sinai deserts. We're told that that event happened in the, the, the wilderness called Zen. And so we have a picture here of then Zen. Next, okay. Notice the different colored rock. It's whiter, chalkier. This is chalk and, and sandstone mixed with um, soft limestone. Look at this waterfall. Do you see all the sediment that's in it? Okay, so when that settlement settles down through fissures that are made in soft limestone because of hot, cold, hot, cold, rock breaking, doesn't happen with granite, but hot, cold, then water fills those fissures up and as water continues to flow through those cracks in the rock, all the sediment that's in it eventually heals that, that fissure up, stops it up. You see, for example, here's Israel's um, uh, Grand Canyon. It's, it's the Wadi or Nahal Zin. And you can see water down here at the bottom um, and where water has flowed and cut this incredible erosion um, system into this soft limestone. Take a look at this one. It's a close-up. Um, we're down at the, in the valley floor of Wadi Zin. And look at the discoloration here. All of that brown there, that's healed up fissures. 
It's silted up. Its sediment has, has created a rocky crust that now there's water behind that. And if you went up with a big rock or with a stick and hit that, you could crack that. and that, It's called a mineral cap and water flows out. Any shepherd knows this. So God says, because of your change in context and situation, this time, Moses, all you've got to do is speak to the rock. I will do the rest. I want you hitting the thing because that would put you in the limelight. That would put, make you the provider of Israel. You and all of your previous experience. And, and this is self-reliance. This is, uh, this is self-dependence, which is totally antithetical to biblical faith. God wants us trusting him, not leaning to our own, uh, own understanding. And so um, here's what yet, yet another example. You have a uh, tree that's called an acacia tree. It spreads out so it protects its own roots. See the, uh, the shade there? And it probably is alive because of a water seep right there. Do you see the, the limey discoloration there on that rock? By the way, acacia wood is the type of wood because of where they were when they made the tabernacle. Everything in the tabernacle, including the famous, now Indiana Jones famous Ark of the Covenant made of acacia wood. And you go, well, that, those are some pretty spindly trunks there. Yeah, no, they evidently had to work hard and laminate make uh, wooden laminations to make the furniture uh, and the ark and the like that were in the, um, the, the tabernacle. So we've looked at a bunch of different lenses. These are not the only ones. I would love to do a whole service just on, you, you know, there's a, on the Weather Channel, there's a show called When Weather Changed History, okay? There's weather going on in both Testaments. We mentioned one example, a storm on the Sea of Galilee, um, there's yet another uh, lens that you could look at. But we've looked at a few to kind of whet your appetite and to, to kind of bring some encouragement to you that if you don't know the na- you don't understand what the place name means or the person's name, don't quickly run to spiritualize that. If you don't understand something cultural or something geographical or whatever that's going on, we don't have to spiritualize things and make everything into a metaphor and into a symbol and into a figure of speech. Most often, the Bible speaks very literally, and it's, in, it's engaging you. It's inviting you. Come on into this world with me. Um, so the realities of the Bible should be taken seriously. They, they're real. They're there. They're observable even today. 21st century AD. Um, before spiritualizing, try checking the backstory. Um, uh, more often than not, it actually means exactly what it says. I had this friend, a, an English professor, and we, we went from place to place in Israel, and after every location and lecture and discussion, we'd get back on the bus and he would say in the back of my ear, well, Wave, don't you think that that was a metaphor for, and I would go, no, Jim, that was a real rock. You know, it's like reality is good. Embrace it. Uh, Another one, like as in all communication, every fax, telephone message, uh, email, everything has a context and context matters because the Bible is God's communication to us. In terms of accuracy in reflecting the realities of the Bible's own world, the Bible is off the charts in terms of, of of historical, geographical, geological, architectural, archaeological, meteorological accuracy. It's all over the place. Consequently, you can trust God's word. That's, that's good, yeah? Is that good news? 
in a scientific world, we can take those same sciences, turn it on the Bible, and it checks out time after time after time again. And so you can trust God's word. You can believe its message. You can live it. And you can rely on the Bible for your eternal destiny. Well, um, there is one more. And since we had six lenses, I figured six takeaway points. Why not? It's in the lands of the Bible that faith really becomes sight. And I want to encourage you, start saving your shekels and your time off from work and, and, and take a trip. And, and, and not a sightseeing trip, but a serious study trip to the world of the Bible. And for you, over and over, time after time, multiple places each day, faith will become sight. God bless you, CCC. It's always good to be with you. Trust the Lord will touch you with this word and encourage your life with it. Have an awesome day. Have an awesome week in him. And use what we just discussed to be a more effective priest where you serve in your sphere of influence tomorrow morning when you clock in. God bless you.